All right, so um, the pre-tribulation rapture, week six. And uh, this is gonna be it for now. We're gonna, oh, I know. We're gonna finish up for now. Uh, for tonight, I, I think we've got um, time to do this and finish it. Uh, <laughs> so funny how six weeks ago, and I, I, I went back and I looked, and one of the first things I said was, we're gonna try and do this tonight. We may need a second week. Talking about the pre-tribulation rapture, there is the mid-tribulation rapture view, there's the pre-wrath rapture view, there's the post-tribulation rapture view. There are all these different views, and we're trying just to say, what does the Bible teach in its most simplistic, literal form? This is why I have landed on a pre-tribulation rapture, and I still, uh, I still say the, the most compelling verse that we have is that God has not destined us for wrath, but for salvation. After that, there's really almost no need to go further. We have been, and we will, and we'll talk some more tonight. We'll get to point, I think, 12. So if you missed the first 11 points, they are, <laughs> they're available. They're on our YouTube channel. You can go back and, and watch the first five weeks of this. Monday night, Cheryl and I were at, the, uh, at Oak Harbor High School for a soccer game. Freezing. I think hopefully it's the last freezing game of the season. Uh, but as we're sitting there watching the game, Nate Salisbury came up. Nate is the principal of Oak Harbor High School. He's, he's a brother in the Lord, um, and he's part of our fellowship here, he and, and Sabin and their family. And, and Nate came up and sat down, and we're, and we're just talking about some different things, and, and the pre-tribulation rapture came up and the, and the teaching series. Um, and he was, he was hoping I would go a little bit longer than six weeks. He was like, do seven. Six is not a good number to land on. And I thought, you know, okay, first of all, six is the number of man in the Bible, right? And it's the number of non-completion. Well, we're not done yet. We're not complete, even in this life. In fact, you realize that in the study of the book of Revelation, we haven't even gotten past chapter three. We are in chapter three right now, in, in the season of, of the church age. At the end, somewhere there, close to the end of chapter three, hopefully more in the Philadelphia church part than the Laodicea church part, but we're still at that point in the teaching of Revelation. If you don't know what I'm talking about, that'll make more sense in just a second. But, so I'm talking to Nate, we're watching the game and, and having this conversation, and he said, you know, uh, Sabin has something that she says, his wife, that, that's kind of funny. She says, Jesus had better come quick or it's, gonna, or it's not gonna be a surprise. <laughs> I said, you know, <laughs> there's something there. <laughs> Jesus said in Matthew 24, 44, for this reason you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think. In the last six weeks, I've been thinking about this a lot. And, and there, I don't know that there has been an hour, well, no, you know, there probably has been an hour where I didn't think. I think for all of us, there's probably an hour every now and then, uh, even if you pour over these things, if you think a lot about the eschatology and the end times and where we stand in all this and what's happening, if you're reading the news with that kind of expectation and thinking, boy, how can it possibly get worse? Well, it can, but if you're, if you're one of these people, you still have those times when you don't think, right? And that's when he's gonna come. It's right when we, when we don't expect. He acknowledges that most people, Jesus that is, acknowledges most people spend very little time thinking about his soon return, 
But even for those who do spend a lot of time thinking about his soon return, for those who, as Paul writes, love his appearing, I don't think it's so much about surprise as it is we're vigilant, we're, we're, we're living with expectation. But even for living with expectation, when we, we see clear signs of the end, we know he's coming, and yet the sound of the trumpet, no doubt the sound of the last trumpet is gonna be a sudden thrill. It's gonna catch us, and we're gonna be caught up. And I don't know if it's gonna be a sudden jolt to the system. Did I, did I tell you all about this, that years ago when I was doing youth ministry and we did this retreat and we were talking about, about the end, and I really wasn't uh, versed on these things uh, at that time as much as I have been in the last few years, but, but we wanted to really give the kids a surprise, and so we were, we were reading about uh, the second coming of Jesus and the trumpet sounding, and right when I said the trumpet sounds, I had a youth volunteer in the woods with a trumpet. And he blew that thing, and those teens were, I kid you not, 15 feet in the air. I mean, straight up, you know. So anyway, it's gonna be a wonderful, glorious surprise when the Bible says we are caught up in the twinkling of an eye. But the question I wanna start with tonight is, do we really, if we really don't know the day or the hour, does my eschatological perspective really matter? I don't know the day or the hour. Does it really matter what I believe about the coming of Jesus and the end times and what Revelation teaches? And some people have asked that question. Well, we're gonna answer that tonight. Let me pray first. Father, would you just give us insight? Father, we, we come together, and I think it's marvelous. We come together because we love Jesus. And we come together because we wanna hear the truth. And we love to worship and pray and be in fellowship and hear your word. And I just pray that your word, though voluminous tonight, many verses, many places we're gonna be looking, that it would be instructive. And Father, I pray that no one would strive over what they don't know, but would simply take in what they can. And that all of us, Lord, would, as John prayed a moment earlier, would leave here a little different than we came in. Uh, touched by your spirit and having heard your word. And I pray it will be encouraging and comforting and strengthening <clears throat> in Jesus' name, amen. Does my eschatological, which is end times, does my end times perspective really matter if we don't know the day or the hour? Well, I, I ran across something. I shared it with our staff actually last week and I wanna read these through to you. Uh, it really kind of ticked me off. And so I, I think you need to share in this with me. Eight eschatological core values, and this is written by a senior associate leader of Bethel Church, a guy by the name of Chris Volatin. Uh, he wrote this back in 2015. It was only shared with me just last week, this first time that I had heard of it or, or read it. Um, eight values that, that he penned and put on his webpage and, and put out there regarding the end times. Here they are, number one. I will not embrace an end time worldview that re-empowers a disempowered devil. Now this, this will, as you hear these, this will tell you something about his theology. I will not embrace an end time worldview that re-empowers a disempowered devil. And so what he's pushing back against is the idea that, that Antichrist could rise and that Satan could be powerful in the world. What's ironic is that at this point in the world, and skipping ahead a few verses, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse eight, Peter says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
Now, Peter wrote that after the crucifixion, after the cross. Understand, as, as Paul wrote in Colossians 2.15, when he, that is Jesus, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So Jesus triumphed over evil, triumphed over Satan at the cross. It was finished in terms of the work of redemption at Calvary, but you know what? Even a wounded animal is a dangerous animal. Even a disarmed Satan is a dangerous being in the world today. The Bible goes throughout the New Testament warning us to be vigilant about his schemes so that no advantage will be taken of us by Satan, 2 Corinthians 2.11, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. He's at work, he's busy, he's doing his thing. And for those in the world who eschatologically who, according to their end times perspective, believe that we are, they would be called amillennial, they believe that we are in the kingdom right now, that the church is the kingdom, impossible, because the book of Revelation says during the kingdom, Satan will be bound. But Peter said at the beginning of the church age that Satan was running around like a prowling lion seeking who to devour. Paul warns us against his schemes. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse three, he says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus. Well, who would lead them astray? Satan is as yet the ruler of this world. He is not more powerful than God, but he has the usurped authority over the world right now. Anyway, this, this guy says, I will not embrace that type of worldview, the second core value he has. Oh, and by the way, if you're uncertain about the work of Satan, especially when it comes to the end of the end, when it comes to the tribulation period, read 2 Thessalonians chapter two, which we read a few weeks back. Read Revelation six through 19 if you want a picture of what's going on there and of how busy the devil will be. Second core value, he said, I will not accept, I will not accept an eschatology that takes away my children's future and creates mindsets that undermine the mentality of leaving a legacy. First John chapter three, verse two says, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. There is a purifying effect of looking for the coming of Jesus, of being focused on this coming. And my friends, this life is not about leaving my legacy. This life, if anything, is about me taking on the same mentality of John the Baptist. He must increase, I must decrease. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. This life is about the hope of seeing Jesus as he is, like we read in Revelation chapter one last week, and that hope purifies my life for him and for his purposes, which is what we call a Christocentric life, a Christ-centered life that says it's about him and his work, not about me and my legacy. Third core value. Are you upset yet? Anybody upset? Because we're just warming up to this. Uh, Number three, I will not tolerate any theology that sabotages the clear command of Jesus to make disciples of all nations and the Lord's prayer that earth would be like heaven. Let me explain why he wrote that. He has what's called a kingdom now theology, which is that we are in the kingdom now and we are developing the kingdom now and we are building and growing the kingdom now and once we have conquered the world for Christ, we will hand it over to him. Having 
built and created the kingdom. He says, I will not tolerate any theology that sabotages that mentality. The question is, who brings the kingdom? In your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to Daniel chapter seven. Daniel chapter seven. Daniel is just past midway to the right of your Bibles. Daniel chapter seven, Daniel is, is having a vision and it's a vision like many of Daniel's visions that is just wearing him out. It is so awesome. And in Daniel chapter seven, I'll, I'll pick up in verse 13. Get there as soon as you can. If you fall behind on any of these, remember all the verses are up there. You can, you can note them, take a screenshot of them, and uh, you can check them later. Daniel chapter seven, verse 13, he writes, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So whose kingdom is it? It's very obvious that is Jesus. And the kingdom is presented to him by the Father that this is a divine presentation of the kingdom. And down in verse 18, it says, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. We don't give it to him, he gives it to us. We receive the kingdom. We enter into the kingdom. Now, when Daniel's talking about the saints of the highest one, the saints there, the holy ones of God there, are Israel, and we will return with Jesus to rule and reign in that kingdom according to Revelation chapter one, chapter five, and chapter 20. Very clear about that. Acts chapter one, verse seven, the disciples were with Jesus. This is right before he ascends. And, and they say, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? They knew it wasn't there then. It, are you gonna restore the kingdom of David, the, the, the throne of David? Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Kingdom's coming. That, that wasn't the question. Question is, are you gonna do it now? And he says, you don't need to worry about it. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. So I absolutely agree in the Great Commission. I agree that our purpose here on the earth is to spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and yet the kingdom is not yet, even though we're citizens of it right now. We're already citizens, but the actual kingdom as tangibly, physically, literally lived out on planet Earth is still yet to come. Number four, he says, I will not allow any interpretation of the scriptures that destroys hope for the nations and undermines our command to restore ruined cities. Amos chapter nine, verse 14. God says, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. And so that core value betrays a little bit of replacement theology. The next core value, I will not embrace an eschatology that changes the nature of a good God. I will not accept an eschatology, an end times perspective that changes the nature of a good God. What's he getting at there? He's getting at the point that he does not accept all of the 
disaster of the tribulation. A good God wouldn't do that. Let me read to you God's self-description. This is in Exodus chapter 34, verse six. The Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. Notice he doesn't say never angry. Slow to anger. Abounding in loving kindness, which is to say grace and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, and the implication there is of generations, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. And I've explained that to you before, that he comes to every generation to see, are you going to obey me or are you gonna do like your fathers did? Are you gonna like sin like mom and dad? Are you just gonna you know, perpetuate their sin, just keep the same behaviors going over and over? Or are you going to repent and, and turn to me? Because if you don't, I will not leave unpunished. You see, the reality of God's goodness is it must include grace and truth, mercy and judgment. If there is no judgment, then there really is no mercy. If there's no righteousness, then, then where is the love of God? It, it's, got to be, it's got to be both. Perfect justice, perfect judgment, right? But judgment has to come. The girl who shot up the elementary school, the Christian elementary school this week, should there be judgment for that? For the children who were, who were killed? And whenever that kind of thing happens or the things that we continue to see, just the, the horrors in this world, should there not be justice for those who have lost? Well, of course, and no one would argue that until you come to God and then people say, well, yeah, but God's good, so he won't do anything bad. Judgment and justice is not bad. Number six, I refuse to embrace any mindset that celebrates bad news as a sign of the end times and a necessary requirement for the return of Jesus. See, now that's making a wrong assumption that as we talk about the tribulation, that we celebrate the horrors that are coming on the world. Do you recall what I said about that last week? That that is absolutely, completely foreign to the mindset of someone who loves Jesus. If you love Jesus, then you love the sinner and you love the lost and your desire is that they know the truth and that they hear the gospel and that they are saved. We are not waiting around going, yeah, bring it on, Jesus. Take them out. Whoa, I can't wait. Do we get front row seats from heaven at the tribulation happening down on earth? You know what I hear from most Christians when I talk to them about that is they say, are we gonna know what's going on? Because I, I, I don't, I don't want to know. I don't want to watch that. We don't take pleasure in that. We don't celebrate that. He says, number seven, I am opposed to any doctrinal position that pushes the promises of God into a time zone that can't be obtained in my generation, and therefore takes away any responsibility I have to believe God in them or for them in my lifetime. Okay, any doctrinal time zone questions, I would defer to uh, Gabriel and Daniel chapter nine, which we studied last week. God has a time zone. God has a clock that is set. Remember God's TikTok? 
Daniel chapter nine, the 77s that I have for Israel, he says. God's got it, it's not my time, it's not my planet, it's, it's his. And as for promises that, quote, can't be obtained in my generation, Philippians 1, 6 says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We're in process until the day of Christ Jesus, which is the day of the rapture of the church. So whether it happens in my lifetime or not is irrelevant. You know, those who say, I, I have to, I, I'm gonna make it happen in my, you know, I'm, holding, I'm taking hold of the promises in my lifetime. Well, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39 says, all of these people of faith that he's just described in the chapter, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. We have 2,000 years of Christians who have not received yet what has been promised. They will, they will. And should I die before it's all said and done? I will. I will receive what was promised because, Hebrews eleven forty, God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. This is something that's gonna culminate at the rapture where that perfection is, is brought to bear. And all those across 2,000 years of church history and across the thousands of years, the millennia before that of Jewish history, those who died in faith even then, they're gonna see the culmination of all this stuff. All the promises will be fulfilled, but it might not be in your lifetime. Okay, I'm actually really good with that. Finally, the eighth one, and I, I just wanted to throw these out to, to see if I can stir you up a little bit. Not sure if it's working. Some of you are going, I don't believe that the last days are a time of judgment. Nor do I believe God gave the church the right to call for wrath for sinful cities. Okay, I agree. I, I, I'm not here to call for wrath. That's not my job. I'm not the judge. It says there's a day of judgment in which God will judge man, not us. Okay. This whole thing, I don't believe that the last days are a time of judgment. Let me just say a doctrine that is in line with the Bible on the judgment of God at the end of the age is not the church calling for wrath. If we study it, if we recognize it, that's all we're doing. But again, if anything, we are called to declare the gospel of salvation from that wrath. In fact, the whole point of our talking about the pre-tribulation rapture is to say it could happen at any time, live ready. And if you're not sure you're ready tonight, then let's talk about that so that you can know that you are ready for Jesus to call you home. That's how we are called to live. God demonstrates his own love toward us, Romans 5, 8, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I just, that is such an awesome statement. I realize there's not a one of us in here who was clean and had our act together when Jesus died. And the point that Paul is making is obvious. He died before we could clean up our act. He died while we were in our sin. And he did so to demonstrate the love of God for us. And then Paul says this, listen, note this, it's another very important end times verse, Romans 5, 9. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So that's yet another verse that says we are not destined for wrath. We are not going into the wrath of the tribulation. That is not for God's people. But do you hear the problem at the core of those eight core values? 
Let me just see if I can make it a little more clear. These core values all begin, I will not embrace, I will not accept, I will not tolerate, I will not allow, I will not believe. How about just taking God at his word? Doesn't matter what you want to think. What does the word say? 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So let me begin by suggesting that you beware of any speculations or even core values that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. Because as we began last week and we will continue on now, our study is not about what we know, it is about who we know. Revelation chapter one, verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. It is about who you know. And all of the what that we're discussing and talking about, it, if it doesn't point you to who, then, then you're missing the point. It's about who we know. It's about Jesus. So let's get back to it. The rapture of the church. Gonna pick up with point number 12. Okay, we've covered 11 points over the last five weeks, six weeks now. Point number 12, if you wanna jot this down, if you've been keeping track, keeping notes, and it is a problem of trumpets. A problem of trumpets. First Corinthians, and just stay in Revelation because I think we're gonna spend a bit of time there now. First Corinthians 15, 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. So there Paul is describing the rapture. We'll be caught up, we'll be changed. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Advocates of a mid-tribulation rapture. Tribulation, seven years, halfway through, three and a half years in. A mid-tribulation rapture of the church. Advocates of the view that says the church will go through, Christians will go through the first three and a half years and then be caught up. Advocates of the pre-wrath uh, rapture who say it's even a little bit later than that. The reason they come up with this is they connect Paul's statement that at the last trumpet will be changed in a twinkling of an eye. They connect the last trumpet with the seventh trumpet. So turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. Which says, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones, their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshiped God. The seventh trumpet is blown. And at this moment, in heaven, the declaration is made that the kingdom now belongs to Christ. What's interesting, and Jake pointed this out earlier today, is that's in chapter 11, verse 15. There's still a bunch of chapters after this. Well, if the kingdom becomes Christ now, why are there still tons of chapters to come? <laughs> well, the seventh trumpet denotes the point in time in the tribulation, and we are at that midpoint, when control of the earth, the rule of the earth, is stripped from Satan completely. This is when he loses control. Now, this is not when Jesus comes. This is not Jesus setting foot on the earth. This is not Jesus' glorious appearing, but this is the moment where any authority, any control that was left to Satan is gone. 
He loses it completely. He's still gonna be on earth. He's still gonna be an incredible threat. He's still gonna do horrible things. But his usurped authority, his rule over the earth, as both John and Jesus referred to him as the ruler of this world, gone. He is no longer the ruler of the, of the world at this moment, even though he's not done fighting. And yes, again, he was disarmed at the cross, but the Bible is clear as of right now, tonight, John chapter 12, verse 31, John chapter 16, verse 11 tells us he's the ruler of this world. But go back to the Revelation outline. So hold the thought of the, 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 the trumpet, the trumpet problem. Okay, wait a minute. Because here's a seventh trumpet and here's this big deal thing that happens that the kingdom has become the kingdom of Christ. The seventh trumpet is blown. Could this not be the last trumpet? Could this be the, the, the rapture happens right here because of the trumpet problem? I'll come back to that in just a second. But let's get our heads clear one more time on the Revelation outline. So go back to Revelation chapter one and verse 19. Revelation chapter one, verse 19. Therefore, Jesus is telling John, giving him the outline of the entire book, therefore, part one, write the things which you have seen. Part two, and the things which are. Part three, and the things which will take place after these things, right? That is so critical to understanding the book of Revelation. Write the things which you have seen. Part one, Jesus in glory, the person of Jesus Christ, right? Write the things which are the people of Jesus Christ. That is the church age. And by the way, it is chronological. It's chronological. I wanna point this out because, and it was asked, asked of me last week, and it was a really good question. I, I thought that the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments in Revelation overlay the seal judgments. Like a seal is broken and a trumpet is blown and a bowl is poured out, or like this is all kind of a simultaneous thing. It's not. It's not, and John is absolutely clear about this in the book of Revelation, that this is chronologically taken. How do we know? How do we know? Because again, as we pointed out last week, part three, and write the things which will take place after these things, and it is that critical phrase, you Bible students, what is it? Metatauta. After these things in the Greek is the phrase metatauta. Now, the reason why that's important to know is the number of times that John uses it after these things, metatauta, he uses over and over and over in the book of Revelation, and it moves you chronologically through the Revelation, okay? So right here, he says, you're gonna write down the things which you have seen. He saw Jesus glorified. You're gonna write the things which are, the church age, which we're still in right now, and then I want you to write the things which will take place, metatauta, after these things, and we haven't reached that point in history yet. But in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, that picks up with chapter four, verse one. Go there, Revelation four, verse one, which begins after these things, metatauta, right? And just in case anybody might miss it, verse one ends with the same phrase, after these things, metatauta. Let me underscore it for you, is what John is saying here. So now suddenly chapter four begins the after these things. Everything up until chapter three brings us right now to our current place in, in eternity, in history. We're still at the end of chapter three somewhere. We have not gotten into chapter four. Chapter four begins, I believe, and I'll show you this, with the rapture of the church. 
And then, as we talked about, the church is not even present from chapter four all the way to chapter 22, which is the first time it's named again. Now, we do see the bride in chapter 19, so there's the church. But the church isn't named. The word church, ecclesia, is not used a single time after chapter three, even though it's used some 19 times in the first three chapters, right? And we, and we talked about that as well. After these things, the phrase metatauta is used in Revelation 1.19, Revelation chapter four, verse one, it's used twice. It's used again in Revelation chapter seven, verse one, Revelation chapter seven, verse nine, Revelation chapter nine, verse 12, Revelation chapter 15, verse 15, Revelation chapter 18, verse one, chapter 19, verse one, and chapter 20, verse three. And what John is saying all along is he gets to a certain point and goes, okay, now, after these things, and he moves on to the next thing. That's chronological. So we know that the seal judgments that take place in chapter six happen, and then after these things, the trumpet judgments. And then after these things, the bowl judgments. That covers the span of the seven-year tribulation. Let me be more clear. After these things, chapter four and chapter five were in heaven. The church is in heaven. And then what follows after these things is three sets of judgments. And I've already named them, but let me give them to you in order here. Revelation chapter six gives seven seal judgments. Seven seal judgments that are, the seals are broken and the judgments fall by the authority of the lamb. So it's even called the wrath of the lamb. Wrath has begun. Right there with the seal judgments in chapter six. And then right after chapter six, in chapter eight, There's an interlude, an interlude of of silence and prayer in heaven. Revelation chapter eight, verses one through six, and you can even look at that. Revelation chapter eight, verse one, when the lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. I would call that the calm before the storm. There is a silence, maybe even a deafening silence where something is about to happen. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Seal judgments are over. Seven trumpets are now passed out to seven angels. In this time of silence, and then following that, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer that's a fire pan, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar, and he threw it to the earth, and there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake, and the seven trumpets who are seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. So now we're moving into the next section. Seven seal judgment, judgments are over, an interlude, and then picking up in chapter eight, verse seven, through chapter nine, verse 21, we get the first six of seven trumpet judgments. Seven trumpet judgments, seal judgments, trumpet judgments. And then there's another interlude. This interlude runs from about Revelation 10 through 14. Why all of that? Because now from Revelation 10, 11, 12, and and, uh, 13, 14, in there, what John is doing is he's overlaying things that did happen in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Explaining things right up to the midpoint of the tribulation, which is where Satan is gonna really get kicked in the teeth. 
That overlay is important because you can't, you can't talk about two things at once. I was sharing with staff earlier today, I remember the first time I read the book Star Wars, I saw it in paperback in, in a grocery store, I asked my mom to buy it for me when I was a kid, and it was the first time as a kid, so this is 1977, I would have been 13 years old, and uh, as a 13-year-old, I remember reading the book, and I was really impressed that you get like a couple of paragraphs, and then you get the next two paragraphs that were happening at the same time as the first two paragraphs. And I realized, well, of course, because you can't, tell both stories at once. You have to tell this story and then say, okay, and now this was happening on the other side of the galaxy, and you'd read that. That's what Revelation 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14 are about, is this is also what is taking place. It talks about the two witnesses in Revelation 11. These guys are active in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. We don't find out about them to Revelation 11 because John is busy telling us what else, what else is going on. So we come to this, the seven seal judgments, an interlude, seven trumpet judgments, another interlude, and then in Revelation 11, verse 15, which we just read a moment ago, it describes the seventh trumpet judgment. And with the blowing of the seventh trumpet, there is a declaration of the authority of Jesus over all the world, however, listen, still in heaven, okay? The declaration is made in heaven that the kingdom that will now come to earth is now in Jesus' hands completely and all power, rule, and authority has been stripped from the devil. But Jesus is still in heaven and the declaration itself is still made up in heaven. Now this comes before another interlude, which is Revelation 15, verses one through eight. Revelation 15 gives a beautiful scene of worship. It's worship that just takes place. Eight verses of worship going on in heaven in that interlude. And then you come to Revelation 16 and you get to the third, the third set of seven judgments, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, and then the seven vial or bowl judgments. These bowls are now gonna be poured out uh, picturesquely on the earth, uh, denoting the giving of certain judgments. And this is final wrath. Revelation 16 describes the seven bold judgments. Revelation 17 and 18 then describes the fall of religious and then political evil, uh, evil power. And then Revelation 19, the marriage feast of the Lamb and the glorious appearing of Jesus. And Revelation 20, the millennial kingdom and final judgment. And finally, the new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth, Revelation 21 and 22. So that's the outline of the whole book, always moving forward, metatauta to metatauta. After these things, this happens. And then after these things, the next things happen. And it continues on very progressively straight through the book of Revelation. The three sets of, of judgments then, seal, trumpet, and bowl, are chronological, coming in consecutive waves throughout that tribulation. So you got that? I'm, I'm taking it slow, I just wanna make sure I'm real clear on this. So are we clear? Okay, good. Seals, trumpets, bowls. But there's a problem with the trumpets. Come back again to Revelation 11:15, and there it is, the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven. So the seventh angel, seventh angel blew, blew his trumpet or blows his trumpet. And this is a problem. And this again has set up this issue of people who are saying, well, that's it, that's the last trumpet. At the, at the last trumpet, will be caught up, right? Well, there's a chronological problem 
And that is that the seventh trumpet of Revelation chapter 11 is not the last trumpet. At least it's not the final trumpet. So you can't point to Revelation eleven fifteen and say, that's the last trumpet. If you're trying to say chronologically, because it's the seventh trumpet and, and it's here in the book of Revelation happening at this time, so chronologically, that's the last trumpet. Well, it's not the last trumpet because Matthew 24, verse 29, Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, so post-tribulation, right? Not mid, but after the tribulation, Matthew 24, 31, he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together as elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. There's a trumpet after the seventh trumpet. So Rick, is that the last trumpet? Well, if that's the last trumpet, then we go through the tribulation, the entire thing, and I'm a post-tribulation believer. But that's not the last trumpet. Seven trumpets sound, and then there's the trumpet for the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ, which is not the last trumpet. It's the final trumpet. And if you wanna timeline this, yes, the blowing of a trumpet at the coming of Jesus to begin the millennial kingdom, that is the final trumpet. But it's not the last trumpet. <laughs> You're all going, it's not the last trumpet. Listen, trumpets were blown in Israel for many, many reasons. Right There's the shofar, which is the, the trumpet, and then there are the silver trumpets, which kind of took over for the shofar. And actually, the rabbis, the old rabbis, got to the point where they, they say, we're not even sure which one matters, which is blown. It's just a blowing of trumpets. You can blow the silver ones, or you can blow the shofar. Either way, it's, it's good to go. The trumpets were blown in Israel to sound an alarm. They were blown in Israel to rally an army for war. And... They were blown in Israel to call an assembly. So what is meant by the last trumpet? When Paul uses the phrase in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, at the last trumpet, what is meant by that? We've already established it, it can't be, the last trumpet, the rapture of the church, cannot be chronologically after the tribulation, even though that would be the final trumpet that we see in the scriptures. That can't be the quote-unquote last trumpet that Paul is talking about. So now we get to a theological problem with those who say the seventh trumpet is the last trumpet. Well, part of the problem with that is the seven trumpets are blown by angels. Paul says that 1 Corinthians 4, 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. It's not a trumpet of an angel. It's the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain will be caught up. And that trumpet that he says, the trumpet of God in 1 Thessalonians 4 is the same trumpet that Paul calls the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15. It's not Gabriel's trumpet, it's no angel's trumpet and it's not even Dinah blowing her horn. <laughs> the last trumpet is God's trumpet. So that theologically pulls us away from the seven trumpets that are blown by seven angels. This is not a trumpet blown by an angel. This is the trumpet of God himself. But let's be more specific. So the last trumpet, was there a first? 
mean, if there's a last trumpet, there must be a first. And perhaps that's what Paul is pinging off of, the last as compared to the first. There is a first trumpet. Turn in your Bibles all the way back to the book of Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. Did I promise to be done tonight? I said, I said that, didn't I? Yeah. Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. People of Israel all gathered around Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, the Mount of God. And we're told in verse 16, it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. That's the first trumpet that sounds in the Bible. The first use, and the word is shofar, right? The ram's horn, trumpet. That's the first time we hear a shofar sound. The first time the word is used is in verse 13 right above, which says, when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. The first trumpet is right here. The first trumpet blows and it comes from above. So this is, this is a trump of God. This is a trumpet that sounds from above the mountain, a very loud trumpet sound, so that note this, all the people who were in the camp trembled. And this sent shockwaves through the camp of Israel. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. I think very much like the scene in The Wizard of Oz where Dorothy, Tin Man, Scarecrow, and the lion, you know, are coming before the wizard the first time, and, and they can hardly walk up, you know, and they're pushing the lion because he's so afraid. I think picture all Israel like that, coming up to the edge of the mountain and absolutely terrified as this trumpet sounds. Now, Mount Sinai, verse 18 was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. Watch this. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. I, this would have been absolutely terrifying to be standing at the foot of that mountain, seeing it burn and blaze and smoke, and the trumpet is not, it's not do-do-do, hey, come on up. It's louder and louder and louder, do-do-do-do-do, and louder, and the people are, uh, and they're just shaking. And we're told in verse 20, watch this, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, so not all the way down, but he came to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. You see the picture here with the first trumpet? The trumpet sounds, the Lord comes down, and Moses goes up. In the rapture of the church, the last trumpet will sound, Jesus will come to the heavens, and we will go up. So the picture is, is eerily similar between the first trumpet that we see in the Bible at all and what Paul then calls the last trumpet. God is the one who blows this trumpet. Again, it's shofar, the ram's horn, and the blast is intense. And the trump of God, first and last, listen to me, is the voice of God. That is the trumpet. It's the voice of God. Now go all the way back over to Revelation chapter one and verse one. Revelation one, verse one 
the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God. Skip on down to verse 10. Revelation chapter one, verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. The voice is the trumpet. The trumpet is describing the voice. Now skip over to Revelation chapter four, verse one again. Revelation four, one. After these things, metatauta, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here, I will show you what must take place after these things and I believe John just witnessed the rapture. That in this moment, he's being given a, a vision. Now, if that freaks you out at all, read the rest of Revelation. The whole thing is a vision of things that are coming after the church age. So John's vision, what he is caught up to, to experience both in heaven and on earth through the rest of Revelation is what's coming. And I, you know, the parallel is perfect that at the end of the church age, suddenly something happens, Revelation chapter four, verse one. John is caught up. What is John? He's a Christian. So the very picture of the church itself, he's caught up to heaven. How? By a blasting trumpet-like voice. At the last trumpet, we will be caught up. So the picture is, is coming together here that at the first trumpet, God's voice called Moses up and God came down. On the last trumpet, we are caught up to heaven, caught up to be with Jesus for, forever and ever after that. So the last trumpet sounds in apposition to the first trumpet. Apposition just means corollary to or, or parallel to, if you will, uh, both in place. The, the last trumpet is not one of seven alarm sounds blown by angels, and it's not a trumpet to announce the glorious appearing of Jesus when he comes to wage war. No, no, the last trumpet is the sound of the Lord calling his church to come up here. That's the last trumpet in opposition to the first trumpet. And by the way, as with Mount Sinai, the last trumpet is a call to assembly, right? The first trumpet is God calling, bring the people to the mountain. What's funny in, in Exodus 19, little side note, God has to send Moses back down the mountain to tell the people to wash and get clean and be holy before the Lord because they haven't even done that yet. So he comes up and he goes, hang on, hang on. We're gonna have a conversation, but not until these stinky people get washed <laughs> and make themselves holy and consecrated and then have them come back to the foot of the mountain. So first trumpet, last trumpet, call to assembly. What does the word for church mean? Ecclesia is the word, called out, or assembly. The called assembly. The last trumpet is a trumpet sound for the called assembly. Romans chapter five, verse eight again tells us God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So final question on this trumpet issue, does wrath happen before the seventh trumpet is blown? If you're not sure, 
let me clear it up for you. All right? In Revelation chapter eight, verse seven, the first trumpet sounded and there came hail, fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. That sounds like wrath. But if you're not sure, the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, do to do and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. It fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and the third, a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. And you Bible students may remember this. The, the name for Wormwood in Russian is Chernobyl, which is an interesting parallel, but it means bitterness. And so another judgment there. Then the fourth trumpet, verse 12, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. Imagine the dim darkness. Has anybody else felt better now that the sun is out a little earlier and out a little longer? Aren't we like, hallelujah, this is why I love the Northwest? Yeah, we won't talk about it in October. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, verse 13, with a loud voice saying, whoa, whoa, whoa to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. And there are three more trumpets and each one worse than the ones before it. Chapter nine talks about the fifth angel sounding and a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opens the bottomless pit and guess what comes out? Demon locusts. I mean, this is intense and then the sixth angel in verse 13 sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God and the sixth angel who had the trumpet says release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates and the four angels who have been prepared for the day and the hour and month and year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. My friends, this all happens before the seventh trumpet. So if you're a mid tribulation rapture person or a pre-wrath rapture person, and you say, no, the seventh trumpet is that last trumpet. It all has to happen. That's when the church is caught up. Well, guess what? The church has just gone through the wrath of God. And we were not destined for wrath, the Bible says, but for salvation. The seventh trumpet cannot be the last trumpet. The last trumpet, again, in apposition to the first the Bible is not a book of contradictions. That's what I love about the scriptures. God is intentional. He, he says what he means and he means what he says. And let me carry on to the next one, the next principle here. So that's the principle of the problem with trumpets. And I think it's pretty easily explained by understanding what the last trumpet really is, who sounds the last trumpet, and what that sound itself is. It's the voice of God calling his people, come up here, the last trumpet. Principle number 13 this is what I will call, or what, what has been called, the principle of non-contradiction. The principle of non-contradiction. And that is that the Bible cannot contradict itself. Now, it's funny, because one of the criticisms that is leveled, leveled at the Bible is, oh, it's full of contradictions. No, it's not. The only people who say the Bible is full of contradictions are people who have not read the Bible. They've just heard that thrown out there as a smokescreen for really seeing what's in the book. I have been through the book. Many of you have been through the book as well. The Bible is not a book of contradictions. It's 
perfect. And it supports itself internally. There's all kinds of external support for the scriptures. But just get inside the Bible and it supports itself. Let me, let me show you what I mean by this. How many aspects to the first coming of Jesus? Some people say, the thing I don't like about this whole rapture theology is that you say that Jesus comes for his church and calls him out, and then seven years or, or sometime after that, at some point after that, then there's that tribulation period, and, and then Jesus returns. So it's like parts one and part two of the second coming of Jesus. I don't see how Jesus does that. How many aspects are there to the first coming of Jesus to Israel? I mean, God's consistent. Um, would you say that Jesus' first coming was his conception by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary? Is that the first coming? Would you say, no, 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 it was his birth in Bethlehem announced by the angels that we celebrate every December 24th and 25th? Possibly. How about his baptism? When Jesus was baptized, as he said, let us do so now to fulfill all righteousness, to, to kind of kick off his ministry, would that be the first coming of Jesus? How about number four, his return to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, Luke 4, 14. And at that time makes his self-revelation that he is the Messiah of whom Isaiah spoke in the synagogue at Nazareth. He reads Isaiah 61, verses one, and then half of verse two. And he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Is that the first coming of Jesus? How about his triumphal entry into Jerusalem where they were singing Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Is that technically the first coming of Jesus? You know what? I can make a strong case for all five events as being the first coming of Jesus. I think another way to look at it is five aspects of his first coming or, or what the Bible calls, if you want the Greek word, it's the parousia. That's probably a good word to know. If you, if you ever hear the word parousia, someone's talking about the parousia, it's the coming. It's used throughout the New Testament to speak of the second coming and the first coming of Jesus, the parousia. So think about these differences between the two aspects of his second coming. When we talk about the rapture of the church and we talk about the, um, the glorious appearing of Jesus. Think about these differences. Matthew 24, verse 27 says, just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like, this is verse 37 of Matthew 24, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like in the days of Noah. What was going on in the days of Noah? Well, Jesus says people were eating and drinking and they were getting married and they were being given in marriage and it was, it was life as usual. Life was going on and, and someone was standing outside one day and went, that's weird. Well, there's, there's water dripping out of the sky. First time that rain would come down in the rain that brought the flood. Jesus says that's what it's gonna be like at the second coming of the Son of Man. It's gonna be business as usual. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23 says, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then after that, those who are Christ's at his coming, at his parousia. So right there, we, we, have, we have business as usual. We have like the lightning flashing from the east to the west, and, and, and then we have those who are Christ's at his coming. Well, which one is 
which one is happening? There are different world conditions. So note this, the principle of non-contradiction is when these two things are talked about, the rapture and the glorious appearing, there are different world conditions going on. At the rapture, business as usual. Just like the days of Noah, drop of water, huh, that's weird, what's going on here? That's the rapture of the church. That's we don't know the day or the hour. When that moment happens, the world is going on as usual and suddenly Christians are gone. There are gonna be people who are happy about that. But it's gonna be sudden, instantaneous, and it'll be like, wait a minute, what, what just happened? Business as usual. In the glorious appearing, Jesus returns to a world that is in war and unprecedented woe. Daniel chapter 12, verse one, Matthew 24, verses 21 through 31, Revelation 19, verse 19. And by the way, Jesus describing the last three and a half years of the tribulation says in Matthew 24, 21, then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So that's a description of something that is so bad in the world, it is global, it is catastrophic, cataclysmic or business as usual? Which one is it? Well, it sounds like a contradiction to me. Different world conditions. How about the different approaches of Jesus? In the rapture, in every description of the rapture, we meet him in the clouds. But in the glorious appearing, he literally sets foot on the earth. That's a contradiction if it's the same event, right? Right? By the way, I mentioned this before. Let me give this to you right now. If you, uh, let me just read it to you. Three steps in the glorious appearing of Jesus. Three steps in his setting foot on the earth. The Bible tells us first, step one, that he sets foot in Basra, which if you're looking at a map of Israel, you gotta go to the, to the southeast and it's what would be Edom or southern Jordan today. Basra is down there. Isaiah 63 verse one says, who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, it is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the wine press? I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath and their life blood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. I looked and there was no one to help. I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me, I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk with my wrath and I poured out their life blood on the earth. And that is, he steps out of Basra. He comes from Edom, marching in his strength. He begins marching across into Israel and he starts to head north to a valley called Megiddo. Revelation chapter 14, verse 20, says the winepress was trodden outside the city and the blood came up from the winepress. Do you hear the parallel to Isaiah 63? I trod the winepress alone. The blood sprinkled on his garments is from him 
trotting the winepress, and then Revelation 14, verse 20, he says, the blood came up from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. My friends, it is exactly 200 miles from Basra in, Egypt, in Edom up to Megiddo. He comes to Megiddo. Chapter 16, verse 16 of the book of Revelation, they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Harmageddon or Har Megiddo, that is Mount Megiddo. That's step two. Step one, he comes in at Basra and makes his way from Edom up to Megiddo. Step two is he is now in Megiddo, what the Bible refers to and people call Armageddon. That's the second coming of Jesus, but that's only step two. And then finally, step three, Zechariah chapter 14, verse four, says, in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And then Zechariah 14, verse five tells us, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. The holy ones, according to the New Testament, it's the church. We return with him. I, I got a, a text from a sister uh, earlier today. I love this. Let me just share this with you guys. She said, so we come back on white horses in our glorified bodies to live among people who aren't, who aren't in glorified bodies for a thousand years? Whoa. <laughs> and I texted back, Yep. <laughs> and what else do you say? She says, that is too trippy. Sounds like some of the TV shows. And I said, right, I trip on it every time I review it. It's wild, but it's true. He comes back, he comes back, Basra to Megiddo, and then up to Jerusalem where he sets foot on the Mount of Olives. The Bible says the Mount of Olives is gonna split. So powerful and awesome is he, and we return with him at that time. Basra, Megiddo, Mount of Olives. That's the glorious appearing. That is a very different description than the twinkling of an eye rapture of the church. Two different things. Contradiction or perhaps two events. There are different personas, even presentations of Jesus. At the rapture, he comes to receive us to himself, John 14 says. At the glorious appearing, read Revelation 19. Verses 11 through 13, he has eyes of fire, feet of burnished bronze, the, the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. He comes judging and waging war in the glorious appearing, making all things right that are so wrong right now. There are different places for his people. So in the rapture of the church, his people, the Bible describes, as we've said over and over, are caught up to meet Jesus in the air. In the glorious appearing, his people return with him. So one, we're going up. The other one, we're coming down. We're gonna ride. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 3.13 says that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming, the parousia, of the Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. That's you. Jude 14, Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. The word holy ones is hagias. The word hagias is saints. So it was prophesied way back that he was gonna return with his saints. Revelation 19, 14, the armies which are in heaven are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, hint, wedding clothes, and they're following him on white horses. Why? Because we come back with him. Two, as Revelation 1, 5, and 20 declare to rule and reign with him for a thousand years.
And there are different scenarios of, of timing. As we've talked about, the rapture is unknowable. In terms of the day or the hour, we don't know, Matthew 24, 36. It's very clear. We don't know the day or the hour. The glorious appearing can be timed precisely to the end of the seven-year tribulation. You can start a clock running and know exactly when that's gonna happen. The rapture, you don't know. Well, these are two different things. And the simplest and best explanation of these contrasting descriptions of the parousia of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, is two phases of his return. It's not contradictory. It's two separate events that mark the second coming of Jesus. That's point 13. And finally, point 14. My favorite one. A pure, spotless bride. A pure, spotless bride. Why, Rick, do you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church? You Bible students know this. In Israel of Jesus' day, a groom and a bride were first betrothed. The betrothal was like marriage without consummation. So it was as, as um, definite as marriage. If you got betrothed, even if you had not consummated the marriage, even if you had not been sexually intimate as a husband and wife, if you were betrothed, the only way to get unbetrothed was to be divorced. So that's how serious betrothal was. But in Jesus' day, so the, the husband and, or the, the groom and the bride were betrothed. And the groom would then, once the betrothal is announced and agreed upon, the groom would then set to building an apartment addition to his father's house. It would build on. They still do that to this day in, in Israel. Uh, the building on to a parent's house, and, and they will do it, in fact, in, in the Arab sections especially, if you look across in some of the Palestinian territories, you'll see a, a bottom section, and that's where the parents live, and then there's another section where the son lives, and there's another section where his kids live, and you really hope there aren't any more generations after that. <laughs> but they just keep building up on top. Well, that's what they would do. So the groom would be betrothed to the bride, and he'd go home and he'd start working on, this, uh, on his father's house, on, a, on an apartment there. When it was all ready, the father would inspect it. And the father would look at it and go, looks good. Go get her, son. The son would then go out, blowing a shofar with shouts of joy, and the bride had to be ready to go. So you had to know that she had spies that were keeping an eye on the house. Okay, so let's, yeah, get that dress done because he's got like a few more boards to go up. So watching and making sure this is taking place, listen to this, John chapter 14 and verse three. Or verse one, John 14, verse one, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now, now listen to me, I, I gotta stop right here. If all the stuff I went through, all the theological, eschatological stuff I went through tonight so far, you're kind of going, okay, um, trumpet, great. I'm not even sure what, you know, and you got lost, listen to this, just listen to this. Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Simple, believe God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so the groom comes calling. He brings his bride with him. They come to the marriage feast and then they move into the apartment and they sequester there in that place prepared for seven days. 
a seven-day honeymoon where they just enjoy each other and they're alone together and they're getting to know each other better and, and all of that. Paul understood this. So Paul in Ephesians chapter five, verse 25 said, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And as he discusses husbands and wives and how we ought to be to one another at the very end of the passage, Ephesians 5.32, Paul says, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church, the groom and his bride. Now, I've told you before, the groom would not beat up his bride before a marriage feast. When I say that God is not destined us for wrath, when the Bible teaches that, put it in the context of the groom and the bride. What groom would beat up his bride right before the marriage feast? Now, I've said that many times before. I don't know if this surprises you, but, um, but I've actually gotten emails of, of kind of contention with this. Those who don't like me saying this, that the, did I say that right? Did I, the groom with the bride? Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm making sure. That the groom would not beat up his bride before the marriage feast. And, and the response I got was, that's, that's offensive because it disregards Christians who have been beaten up, who have gone through martyrdom and pain and persecution, and what about them? So let me be crystal clear here. Hear what I'm saying. I never said the bride wouldn't be beaten up. I never said the bride wouldn't be outcast, even hated in this world. What I said was the groom would not beat her up. We are not destined for the wrath of God. Jesus will not beat up his bride. Yeah, we're gonna take our hits. Some of you have. I fully expect we will take more before being caught up, unless we're caught up this week, and I'm really good with that. But Jesus would not die on a cursed cross, taking all of the wrath of God on himself for his precious bride, only to send her back into that wrath of tribulation. It makes no sense. And those who say, well, why should we get off scot-free when others have had to go through it? Wait a minute. What does my going through wrath and pain and tribulation have to do with my salvation? I'm saved by grace. There's nothing that I do to prove myself worthy. It's what he did. And he did it at Calvary and he saved us. Jeremy said this earlier today and I love it. He said, you know, I was thinking about Jesus saying that he would take the full cup of the wrath of God. Did Jesus drink half the cup? and leave the other half for the church. See, at Calvary, and this is where we come back to the person of Jesus, at Calvary, he took all the wrath of God on himself and now says, do not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, and I will come receive you to myself. That's the deal. In Revelation 19, verse seven, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And suddenly, here in Revelation chapter 19, there's the church, the bride. And the church is in heaven 
And remember, we have not seen her since chapter three. Suddenly, here's the church in heaven. How did she get there? She was caught up. She was raptured. And that's the deal. The rapture of the church, it all comes down to, or, or up to, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, with the groom, like Enoch. Enoch was caught up, why? Because he was walking with God. God enjoyed the company. God said, just come on home with me. And Enoch was not, for God took him. And I, I submit to you tonight as we finish that if we're walking in the spirit, when the groom calls, we'll go. And it's really that simple. So Father, thank you for all of these things. A lot to take in, I understand, over all these weeks. I, I pray, Father, that we will be students of this. Uh, Lord, I, I actually put the challenge, the, the homework, if you will, out there for my brothers and sisters to continue to pour over this and study this and, and see if there's something wonky in the theology somewhere that I need to be corrected. But Lord, we want to listen to your word and we want to take you at your word and believe you for your word so that our opinions matter very little. It's what you say. We wanna trust and believe that. And so we do tonight. Thank you for your word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Any questions? Right there. And be thinking, if you got any questions, this is it, because after tonight, you are not allowed to ask any more questions of Pastor Rick. It better be good. I would take it literally, but that's, that's a great question. If there's no time in heaven, then how could be there a half hour of silence in heaven? The half hour of silence would be measured from an earthly perspective. So if we were on earth while that was taking place, it would take a half hour. And so what, what John is writing there is just, this is, this is the time frame for us from an earthly perspective of what's taking place there. But you're absolutely correct that God is outside of time, and so time would be irrelevant, which that... That becomes a mind-boggling conversation if we start talking about time and how time works in heaven versus here. And, and what about, you know, so someone who dies, Paul dies in the first century. Has any time gone by for him? Or does he die in the rapture of the church happens like that because there is no time? Yeah. Yeah, for that half hour. Now, now, did the worship of God cease? Worship is a heart issue. So I would assume that worship is ongoing always in the presence of God, that there, the heart is always worshiping. But the singing, the praise, the glory, the holy, holy, holy stopped for the equivalent of a half hour. And again, the measuring of time there versus here, and, and there, was a, there was a span of silence. I don't know how that works outside of time. But John does describe, because he's there, right? So he's there witnessing all of this by the vision, the, the revelational vision. He sees this taking place, and so he measures about a half hour. So, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, for, for it to go silent in heaven. And if you didn't hear, she said, for me, that is incredibly 
profound. I absolutely agree. In fact, every time I read that, I get really quiet. <laughs> now, there was silence in heaven. Yeah, yeah, like the calm before the storm. The Bible doesn't tell us. Will we be aware, will we see and know what's happening during the tribulation when, after we are caught up? And my answer to you, the Bible does not tell us specifically. Um, years ago, I, I came to the realization though that if I'm with Jesus, I don't know that I'm gonna be paying attention to anything else. I think we are gonna be so enamored and so caught up in the worship and so overwhelmed by what we are experiencing with him. And by the way, this goes to those who say, well, if it's all true, I'll just wait and see if the church is raptured and then I'll believe in Jesus. You're gonna miss the time of your life. Time. You know what I mean? You're gonna miss the opportunity of being in the presence of the Lord and, and, and having that and the marriage feast of the Lamb and all that, that we don't even have described for us that takes place for those who are caught up while all of this is going on on the earth, those who are pulled out, you'll miss that. If you don't believe in Jesus now, you're gonna miss it. And with that, who knows if you even have a chance to believe in him once this ball starts rolling and all these things start, these calamities start happening. There are people are gonna be dying right and left. And it's gonna be a difficult, difficult time. So, I, I don't know that we will be aware of what's going on on earth. I, my, my assumption is, A, we'll be enamored with Jesus, but B, I don't think we will. I, I, don't, I don't think we'll be aware of that. At that point, God is doing his work and it is not our business. Yeah, Revelation chapter seven is what Linda's referring to. And let me just read it to you. Revelation seven. After these things, oh, look, after these things, metatauta. <laughs> I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from, note this, from every nation and tribes and peoples and tugs tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. And then one of the elders answered saying to me, John writing, uh, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? Where have they come from? These are not the raptured church. I said to him, my Lord, you know. I started using that in Sunday school when I was a kid. You know, anytime I was asked a question, Rick, what do you think about this? Well, my teacher, you know. It didn't go over well. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out from the great tribulation. That is, they were in the tribulation and they come out from literally before the great tribulation. So these are those, these are martyred believers in Jesus who die in the first three and a half years of the tribulation. 
and they die, and now their spirits are there, uh, says, they come out of the great tribulation, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle, his covering over them, and they will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb is at the center of the throne, he will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. And so here they are, and I'm trying to see where they are asking. That's further, isn't it? Where they're saying, how long, Lord? Somebody find that and let me know when you find it. So at what point, because then it is at a point after that that they, that they cry out, how long? Oh, it's the martyr's cry, that's right. Okay, so back in Revelation chapter six, verse five, the, he broke, Jesus uh, broke the third, uh, verse five? No, martyr, verse nine, right. The fifth seal. Uh, verse nine, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? There was given to each one of them a white robe. So these are the same people being described in Revelation 7, okay? These are those who are martyrs who come out of, who are killed for faith in Jesus during the tribulation. It's amazing because in Revelation 7, it says that they are a great multitude, literally multiplied millions. So after the church leaves, multiplied millions are still gonna get saved, which tells us that we are invited to be a part of the gospel of salvation, but it is not based on our ability. God's gonna keep saving without us. Yeah. Okay, other questions? Yeah, Deb. The awe tribute, what? Does it matter? <laughs> I, I just gotta shake my face at you. No. The No, no. Well, the Bible doesn't describe a second one. There's just Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's just one, and no, you don't get trophies for participation. Hmm? And there's only one bride. Amen. Right. Right. And that's where you start to realize there are distinctions in people who are saved. Um, the tribulation saints are not part of the church. So they're not the bride. So the wedding feast isn't for them. Now they, they will be invited, I think, to the wedding feast. Blessed are all those who are invited. But the church is the bride. And um, you know, God does make distinctions. I mean, at the end of Revelation, he even says, behold, I'm coming and I'm gonna render to everyone according to what they've done. Which has nothing to do with salvation, but it does have to do with what did you do? I'm gonna, I'm gonna thank you and bless you and reward you for what you did or did not do. 
So God does make distinctions. And, and if, we, if we go with the reality that God is 100% absolutely fair and just and right, then those who are caught up of the church, let me, let me ask you this, why, why? Why would the church be special? What is different? If, if you could point to one thing that is unique and different about the church, what would that be? Faith? Jesus said, Jesus said, you believe because you have seen, he said to Thomas. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. That's the church. That's the last 2,000 years. None of you here have seen, other than, you know, I mean, if you've had a vision, God bless you, please tell me, I'd like to hear it. But none of us have seen Jesus in the flesh. But we believe. There is a very, because faith pleases God, there is a very, very special, uh, I will say dispensation, the church age. The church is special to God because the church is those who have believed without seeing. And faith pleases God. Other questions? Awesome. It's 8.16. We'll get you out of here by 8.30. How's that sound? One more time. I have absolutely no idea. He was presented before him. So that whole section, well, that's a, that's a study unto itself, Jackie, but Daniel, when he says, I kept looking in the night visions, behold, the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. So that's Jesus was coming and he came up to the ancient of days. What's really interesting is he's also called the ancient of days. So he both comes before the ancient of days and he himself is the ancient of days, which should tell you something about the Trinity, about the absolute unity of that. But he came to the ancient of days and was presented. Is that what you mean? He was presented before him. Who presented him? Okay, Holy Spirit, <laughs> perhaps, you know, he, but he comes up and to him was given the dominion and glory and a kingdom. So I, that doesn't really answer the question. That's one of those, well, after this vision, Daniel says, I was distressed in spirit and visions in my mind kept alarming me. Daniel as a prophet was blown away every time he had a vision. And there's one point where he's on his bed for three weeks because he is so wiped out by the vision. So be careful, those of you who want visions. Might wipe you out. Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, we go back to the character of God. And we talked about this age of accountability and, and whether it's 20 years old, which that's, that's very, I'm still really chewing on that one. That's very interesting that, it, that Israelites were considered young men at, at 20. They, they then could go off to war and they then could fight. Before that, they weren't accountable. Um, 
So 20, well, that's old. But yeah, I, we're talking about a good and gracious and righteous God. He's gonna do the right thing, always. And then when you look, yeah, what do the scriptures say about children? What, what, and that, when we looked at the paideia, um, what did Jesus say about children? How did he behave toward the children? What was his view of children? And that should tell you something of the heart of God for kids. So yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised, yeah, that there's nowhere in scripture where you have a picture of a child in, in hell or Hades. Yeah, I don't think so. Any others? You guys are shooting for getting out of here before 8.30? Yeah, so the word dispensation, if you've ever heard that word, that's a nice, it's a good theological word. Um, you may have hear, heard of people being called dispensationalists. I would be called a dispensationalist. All that means is that you recognize through history that God dealt with mankind, dealt with humanity by different dispensations. So one dispensation would be Adam and Eve in the garden the dispensation of Adam and Eve and, and of Eden, that was a, there was a specific way God was interacting, and then they fell, and that fell apart. There's the dispensation of the days of Noah. There's the dispensation of when God was dealing specifically with Israel and, and that time period. The church age, the last 2,000 years, is another dispensation. The word itself, you could translate administration or organization, but, but it has to do with the interaction of God with humanity, and the way God has interacted with humanity in the last 2,000 years is very different than how he dealt with humanity before that, right? Right now, this is the age of grace. Well, what I call the church age could better be called the age of grace. Right now, you have the right to do whatever you want, live however you want, and decide for God or reject him, and you still just live your life. The judgment that fell on the Israelites during that dispensation was, was immediate and severe based on the law. But we're in the age of grace. That's this dispensation. The millennial kingdom will be another dispensation where God's interaction is different than it was during the church. It doesn't mean that he's changed, but we have. And the different seasons of the world have changed. So those are different dispensations. There's a fantastic book. Oh, I'm gonna get it wrong. I think it's by, by Ryrie, Charles Ryrie. That's just called Dispensationalism. And it's, it's not a hard read, it's, it's scholarly, but it's really good and it would explain that for anyone who wants to dig into that further. So summing all this up, it's too long, let me sum up. We are at a point right now in history where everything that has to have happened prior to the rapture of the church has happened. There's nothing else in terms of Bible prophecy that needs to take place. It's all done. If, if we went back to, say, 1940, I would say the only problem with an imminent return of Jesus at this moment is Israel's not even in the land as a nation, so how can the things happen related to Israel in the tribulation? You know, I, you, could, you could actually question that. Um, at this point, there's nothing left that has to happen. Everything that God promised he would do up to the rapture of the church has been done. 
So we truly are in the days of the we don't know the day or the hour. And I don't say that to frighten anybody. In fact, this whole six-week conversation has not been about trying to scare anyone. This is our blessed hope, Titus 2.13. This is to comfort each other with these words, 1 Thessalonians 4.18. So this is, we look forward to this, and as we began six weeks ago, I remind you again, the rapture is our resurrection. When we talk about we're going to be resurrected, that's the rapture. That's when it happens. That's when we're caught up and glorified instantaneously and we go to be with the Lord forever. So if you're not ready, all you gotta do is believe in Jesus. That's what he asks you to do. If you wanna pray about that with me, with, with Jake, with Les, with, with any of us tonight, and, and you're like, I, I, I wanna be sure, then let's pray about that. Receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Follow him. He, he, he's, I'm not asking you to be like me. Trust me, my wife's not asking you to be like me. Right, Cheryl? Just saying, be like Jesus. Follow him. He loves you. He believes in you. He just asks you to believe in him. So let's pray one more time. We'll let you go. Lord, thank you for this time in your word and for these conversations. And I know there will be more. And we just welcome those anytime that we can pour over your word. I, I, I thank you for blessing us with the truth. And, and really, I do pray, Lord, that all the things I talked about tonight, Last couple of weeks, we've moved really fast through some heavy sections of Revelation. And I just pray all will come to the, the knowledge of the Son of God. That we will all come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The revelation is you, Lord Jesus. And we love you and we thank you so much for showing us the things that must soon take place uh, after these things. In Jesus' name, amen.